I'm going to preach Chinese style, that is, in a coat. <laughs> I can see some of you still in coats, so I don't feel too bad. It's cold, isn't it? Yes. Lovely. Um, wasn't that a great time of singing? What fantastic songs we sung. Please do bear them in mind, because today's story from 1 Samuel, chapter 28, a little bit of a tricky story, a little bit dark, and so we need to bear in mind the light side of things. And we have sung some fantastic songs of truth and the particular um, reflection upon Romans 8 that was brought to us by Linda and then subsequent contributions afterwards. We'll return to that again at the end. So don't forget that. Hang on to that as we venture into this story towards the end of the first book of Samuel, chapter 28. So I am going to read the whole story. It is fairly long. It forms 25% of my notes, almost exactly. So that should give you an indication of how long things are going to be. Is it on the screen? Can I have it on the screen? Lovely. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, who's the king of the Philistines, said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So where we are now is that David has been fleeing from King Saul, who is pursuing him and wants him dead. And so David has taken refuge in the land of the Philistine and is here living under the rule of King Achish. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But the important thing is, for the beginning of the passage, he is not in Israel. Now, Samuel died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. So Samuel's not there anymore either. And Saul had put out the mediums and necromancers, that is the fortune tellers and occultists, out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, which is something unknown to us, but a means by which priests used to divine the will of the Lord, or by prophets. I just want to underline here, when it says the Lord, does it say the Lord? In capitals, that's the same as Yahweh. It's the way that it's just written in our language. So it's the specific name of God. It's not a generic word for God. That's important. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What's his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. 
Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbour, David. Because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord and didn't carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him. For he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Sometimes a story in the Bible is kind of self-explanatory, I think. I feel like this is one of these stories, and that's why I've read it in full. It's sort of not particularly difficult to understand, I don't think, and the meaning is pretty obvious. Don't go raising people from the dead via a medium or an occultist. Are any of you in danger of doing that? No. Not this week, no. Saul has backed himself into a corner because of his persistent refusal to listen to God. He's been told time and time again that the kingdom is no longer his and will be given to David. And rather than turning to God in repentance in response to that, He's tried to grip onto his kingship harder and harder. It was ever thus for the human race. Give us the tiniest bit of power and we will cling to it with irrational passion, with all of our might. Let it go. If Saul had let it go, his end might have been somewhat different. But Saul won't let it go and he won't repent. And instead his anger and resentment towards David festers and grows such that David has had to leave Israel and live in exile amongst the Philistines. A bit of a surprise that I saw some surprise on some faces when I explained earlier on where David was. Because yes, he has gone to the home of Goliath. He's gone to the city of Gath, where Goliath was from, and is living under the rule and reign of Achish there. And he's serving the king of that city. So at the start of our story today, David is with the Philistines outside of Israel. And in fact, at the beginning, what's said to him is, you must come with us as we go to war. The Philistines are going to war against Israel, and David is meant to march with them. And he says, yeah, I'll go with you. In fact, if you read the next chapter, you'll find out that for various reasons, he does not go. But that's how it starts here. So the Philistines come against Israel again, just as they did previously when Goliath was their champion. We know about that first one, don't we? David and Goliath, everyone knows that story. Saul and the witch of Endor, less well known. 
But the, the Philistines are coming against Israel again. And again, Israel and particularly King Saul are afraid. What should Saul do? What did David do? What would David do? Well, last time we know what David did. We knew that he knew what to do, which was to trust God with everything and to go and fight. Saul doesn't have the courage and he doesn't have the faith to do that. So he wants to hear from God. He wants to hear from the God that he has already rejected. Unsurprisingly, therefore, God does not answer. As Saul later says to Samuel, God has turned away from me. Saul's desperate, though. In the past, he'd actually done this quite a good thing. He had got rid of all the mediums and necromancers, the people who raise spirits up and consult them through the occult. He's got rid of them from the land, as per God's laws in Deuteronomy. And this is commendable, although it's clear he hasn't done a very thorough job, because as soon as he goes to his servants, I want to speak to a medium, they go, oh, there's one in Endor. They know exactly where to find one. So Saul disguises himself and goes to see the witch. And she is understandably wary. So Saul then promises by Yahweh, by the name of the Lord, that she will be okay. It says that Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you. And that's pretty bad. Saul, who has rejected Yahweh, is grumpy that Yahweh doesn't speak to him and goes to consult the devil, figuratively speaking, and he invokes the name of Yahweh to guarantee the witch's safety. This is an excellent example of blasphemy. Promising the demonic in the name of the Lord that you will protect the evil. Despite being called by Yahweh, Saul was called by Yahweh, despite being given miraculous victories by Yahweh, despite being given Samuel the prophet by Yahweh, despite being given a righteous son, Jonathan, by Yahweh, despite being numbered amongst the prophets himself, despite being warned again and again what will happen if he doesn't obey Saul doesn't understand Yahweh at all. He was given so much and yet he flushed it all away for the sake of his bitterness and clinging to power. But Saul now is desperate to hear from God, but he's paid no attention to God's voice and so now God is silent. Except actually he's not. And God now speaks through Samuel, the dead prophet. And Samuel repeats what Saul already knows. The kingdom isn't yours, it belongs to David. And so now tomorrow... You and your sons will die and the Philistines will win, which is not what Saul wanted to hear. Saul's response, therefore, is typical, I think, of him. He falls on the ground, not out of fear of the Lord, not in repentance, not in worship. How could you worship God in the house of a witch? But in fear of judgment. He throws this sort of temper tantrum. Judgment is designed to get us to change our our behavior, to change, and Saul will not change. Instead, he just refuses to eat in a huff. This reminds me of a three-year-old. Eventually, Saul is persuaded to listen, but he doesn't listen to what the Lord has to say through Samuel. No, he listens to the witch. For she says to him, strengthen yourself. Strengthen yourself with my food. Eat my unleavened bread. Have your last supper with me, with the devil. And then they rise after they've eaten and they walk into the night like another man who ate and drank in the very presence of the Lord for three years, saw amazing things done in his name and by his hand, and yet after eating unleavened bread for the last time 
on Maundy Thursday, rose up, as it says in the Gospel of John, and went out into the night to face his judgment, for Saul is Judas. Saul was desperate to hear God speak, but his desperation led him astray because he failed to listen when God was speaking. God had spoken to him very clearly, but he didn't like what he heard. And so when the Philistines came again, instead of relying upon all the previous times when God had spoken, Saul insisted on a new word. He insisted on a fresh word, on a word for today, not yesterday. But the word for yesterday was still good. Yet Saul rejected it and he went to the devil instead. He wanted to hear something supernatural that day, even if through the demonic. We're a church that believes that God speaks today. That is not in dispute. He does. But the point I want to make is this, is that God also spoke yesterday. And it's still relevant. It still matters. And the problem for our kind of church is that we can very easily cut ourselves off from the past. And it leaves us a bit helpless when the Philistines come again. When they're back. We are living in very uncertain times. Post-war Britain has taken, along with most of the Western world, many things for granted, certainly in my generation. We've taken for granted that life expectancy will go up, that we will be wealthier, healthier and happier, that we can be comfortable, that we'll be warm in the winter and cool in the summer, that such a thing as retirement exists. And I think some of these things are passing away, at least they're under threat of passing away. A historical anomaly in the history of mankind. I think we thought that we were beyond many of these things. We've got our modern medicine, we've got our modern politics, we've got our democracy, we've got human rights, we've got capitalism. These things have largely banished such things as infant death, infectious diseases, war, being cold, being hungry, slavery to the periphery of our society. But in some cases they're back or they're threatening to come back. Like the Philistines, they're back. And we want God to speak to us in our present day. Philip Reef, who was a post-war American sociologist last century, not a Christian, commented that in the past people went to church not to be made happy, but to have their misery explained to them. (laughs) Or as another writer has put it, Christianity is an explanation, not an analgesic. It's not an opium for the masses. In any church more than 100 years ago, happiness was not high on the agenda for the congregation. Chances are that if it was 100 years ago, most of us would already be dead. Life expectancy in 1900 was 47. I'm 44. Fortunately, I understand how the statistics work. But um, chances are quite high you would have suffered the death of a, a child less than 12 months. Infant mortality is 15% in 1900 compared to 0.4% now. 1900 is not very long ago. My great-grandparents were alive in 1900. It's not long ago. Chances of you dying from cancer, stroke, or heart disease were low because you'd probably already be dead from an infectious disease. Your work would have been menial and physically demanding. 100 years ago, if it was 1922, you'd have known a lot of dead young men through war. For the vast majority of human history, for the vast majority of people, life has been really hard. And Christianity is not designed to make life comfortable. 
It is meant to make life endurable in the best sense of that word. And I know that sounds pessimistic, but let me just press on the, the point a little bit more. I want to press the point because what is the message of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation when he gives seven letters to the seven churches to which John is told to write? Jesus says this to John. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, seven times he says those things. Seven times. In the face of all of the adversities, and this was mentioned earlier, in the face of all of the adversities which come in Revelation and which Christians will be subject to and experience, war, hunger, it is to the one who stands, to the one who endures, to the one who is victorious, the one who wins that God's gifts are given. And it is the word of God which makes this possible. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I read an article in The Atlantic recently, it's a magazine online, and uh, it was about Bono. It was an interview between Bono, the singer from U2, um, that he gave with the writer recently, because he's got a book out and he needs to do the publicity for the book. But it includes this sentence. But for Bono, Mullen and Evans, the U2 members who became and remain Christians, punk rock and the radical Christ are on the same team. The three of them embraced a faith that simply bypassed the encrustations of 2,000 years of religious civilization and returned straight to Jesus. They're the words of the journalist. They're not the words of Bono, but they're wrong. You cannot simply bypass 2,000 years of the church of Jesus Christ and return straight to him. It cannot be done because we are a product of those 2,000 years. We're not a blank slate. Who you are, the way you think, the way I am, the way I think, it is a product of those 2,000 years. God has been speaking throughout those 2,000 years, just as he was speaking for the 2,000 years before and all the years before. The Jesus of the Gospels is the center, but he is not the beginning and he is not the end. The Jesus who is the beginning and the end is the Jesus from the beginning of Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation. And that hasn't finished playing out yet. Do not think that we can hear God directly ourselves by ignoring thousands of years of him speaking. That's what Saul thought, and he ended up communing with the devil. Christianity is not just, though, a rational explanation for why life is hard and may remain so until Jesus comes again. It is a personal explanation. It is a warm explanation. It is a God who takes on flesh that we remember this time of year, comes down into a city, a small city, the middle of nowhere, as it were, takes on flesh, becomes a baby, grows up, becomes a boy, becomes a man, lives a life, lives a life as one of us, becomes one of us, dies as one of us, dies instead of us. The reality is that we can, we will have joy even whilst we're suffering. Because even in the midst of that suffering, the grace of God means that we can know God. Has not turned away from you. That's what the Romans 8 passage is about, right? God has not turned away from us. He is for us. He is with you. He's for you and he saves you. He loves you. And all we need to do is to repent. It's what Saul would not do. He would not let go, but he clung to what he thought he had and lost everything. All we have to do is repent. It's not a work. 
you just throw yourself on Jesus. You throw yourself on God. You throw yourself on his gospel and listen to what he has to say. To repent is to turn to God and find him waiting for you. God has much to say to you, but we have to be careful, not be like Saul, not go with our prejudged idea about what we want God to say to us. He might say things that we're not expecting to hear. If we do come to God like Saul, dissatisfied until we hear what we want to hear, things will not go well. Resentment, bitterness and disappointment will increase, end up eating us up. But if we come to God ready to listen to what he has to say, then we will find peace, hope and joy to stand and conquer our enemies. Not just for today. We sung a minute ago when I surveyed the wondrous cross, did we not? I love that hymn. Do you know how old that hymn is? Published in 1707. I'm not bypassing that when I go back to Jesus. I want that. I want to sing that song. It has a lot to say to me. If we come to God, ready to listen to what he has to say, then we will find peace, hope, and joy to stand and conquer our enemies. We will find a God who has been speaking to people like us for centuries, giving comfort, giving encouragement, giving courage and rest to live in this world. Knowing that we are not of this world, we belong to a better place. We are sojourners. We are traveling through. This time of year, Jesus has come, a new Moses, to lead us out of slavery and from sin in Egypt through the Red Sea into this wilderness period, which we are now traversing on our way to our promised land, to the place where we do belong, the place where we are citizens, a better place to come, a place and an age where evil and suffering and trial will be no more. That's where we belong to. This does not stop us praying now for peace and for health and for warmth and for provision and expecting God to meet our needs because that's what he's promised he will do. But the backdrop conditions of our world, the things we take for granted, the things we may consider to be normal, may be changing. The Philistines may be back. I don't know. But what I do know is that we need to be prepared for any on a war footing, as it were. Prepared for anything. And it is the good news of Jesus. Spirit with us and the word which he speaks to us that will make us able to stand firm in our be victorious as Jesus expects us. Says you will be. When he's speaking at the beginning of Revelation to those churches, it's a word of encouragement. Stand firm, endure, stand your ground, stick it out. We are going to die, but you will endure and then you will receive the gifts, the inheritance which God has stored up for us. So we're going to sing again, because it's taken us to a little bit of a low, but hopefully given us some light at the end of the tunnel. And some of the songs we sung this morning were glorious lights at the end of the tunnel. And it's not distant, we experience some of it now. We experience the warmth and the effect of that light.